walk, believe, or walk, then you walk, believe, or walk, then you walk, tell you walk, then you walk, tell you walk, then you walk, believe, or shout, then you believe, or shout, then you tell you shout, then you tell you shout, then you show the other way, then Hello, everyone, and welcome to Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering and eternal commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend, you find the conversations on this channel enlightening, entertaining, insightful, soothing to the ear, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this channel. We'd be more than happy for you to join our growing community of philosophers, of lovers of wisdom, of lovers of great conversation, among whom I can tell you most certainly belong. For content specific to wellness, philosophy, meditation, and sleep, you can, of course, visit my sister project, Numa, by Daniel Finneran to which I'll uh, I'm sorry, include a link below, and it's available on YouTube and uh, all the usual podcast streaming services. My guest today, uh, with whom I'm absolutely honored and delighted to have the opportunity to chat, is Dr. James Charney. Dr. Charney is not unlike the recent string of superb guests I've been lucky enough to meet and host on this channel a diversely talented, highly educated, and widely accomplished man. A psychiatrist by training, Dr. Charney has since his boyhood, upon which he reflects most tenderly in the introduction to his most recent book, nurtured a strong affinity for film. Dr. Charney attended the prestigious Columbia University, at which, while an English major, he enrolled in the school's very first film history class. A victim, perhaps, of the uncertain career prospects by which every English major is at some point along the course of his academic journey haunted, Dr. Charney declared himself pre-med. He went on to obtain his medical degree from Duke University. While practicing as a clinician, he took a teaching post at Yale University, where he introduced a course entitled Madness at the Movies the very same title that his new book bears, of which I purchased myself a copy, and of which I urge you uh, to purchase yourself a copy. Dr. Charney, thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Daniel, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you developed quite early in life something more than a childish affinity for film. Uh, you seem to have taken to the theater uh, enthusiastically mm -hmm. at that very young age. Can you recall your first or most impressionable experience at the theater? And if so, what was that like? I cannot at all recall my first experience uh, uh, seeing movies, but the most impressionable one um, fits in very well with something that I've been working on quite recently, which was um, seeing a couple of horror movies um, as a young kid um, that probably um, permanently 
<laughs> permanently damaged my psyche. Um, but uh, uh, back in the day, um, and this is a long time ago because I'm pretty old, uh, movies were cost about 25 cents. And the local movie theater would have a double feature. And the double features um, were also uh, uh, coupled with shorts, cartoons, documentaries, newsreels. And uh, so you can have an entire afternoon's movie um, experience. You often go with some friends. And it, of course, gave your folks um, uh, an entire afternoon separate and, and, and free of you. Um, so it was a very common thing for them to drop us off and we'd watch a double feature. And unfortunately, one time I saw a double feature of two horror movies. One was the movie Them, which is a story about giant ants that are created out of the radioactivity from nuclear testing. In the 1950s, this was very much a subject of movies because um, the atomic bomb was very scary. Uh, so these giant ants um, were um, terrorizing the Southwest and then parts of California. And, uh, and what I remember most about that was the brilliance. This was, one of the things that was an absolute pleasure for me was to discover as an adult watching the movie them and deciding that if I'm going to have a traumatic movie experience, it might as well be with a good movie. Um, because it's very easy to have a traumatic experience with a mediocre one when you're young enough. And it turns out this is a really well done film that stars James Arness, who later became famous on television for one of the early popular Westerns called Gunsmoke. Um, but he, uh, uh, what was wonderful about this film was the way it made you terrorized before you ever saw the monster. And what it did was that um, when they discovered a few dead bodies, they smelled a smell that they identified as formaldehyde. And what would happen next in the film was the whiff of formaldehyde would portend that um, the monster was approaching. Because it turns out um, that formaldehyde is indeed a chemical that ants uh, use when they are killing their prey. But when, you, when the prey is a human being and the ant is a giant ant, then we're in trouble. So anyway, this movie scared the heck out of me. And I have to say, I watched most of it uh, behind my hands like this. Um, but I made the mistake of watching it twice because what happened was that my, um, my mom forgot to pick us up. And so I stayed. And, not, and by the way, the second movie was a really mediocre horror film called um, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, um, and what made it mediocre, unlike the, uh, them, which was so good at suggesting the horror before it showed it, you didn't actually see one of these giant ants until well past the half point, halfway point of the film. Uh, what made the creature of the, the, the Black Lagoon so mediocre was it was basically, uh, it had a costume that even an eight-year-old could look at and say, this is really silly. Um, but I wound up watching them twice, and it, I had bad dreams for weeks after that. Um, and uh, and I have never I never let my mom forget that she allowed me to be overexposed to this scary movie. So that's that is my first early memory. Um, on the other hand, my family had a wonderful tradition of going to see movies as a family, and often they were the event movies that would be in 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 the big city. So the kind of film where you'd have to get tickets in advance, The Ten Commandments, Around the World in Eighty Days. Cinerama movies where the screen was almost 
probably 180 degrees. Um, it, it totally encapsulated um, your, your, your field of vision and really pulled you in. It was in the days when the movies were running scared because everyone was watching television. And so the movies had to, um, had to do something to make it worthwhile for you to go out of your, leave your living room and go into a theater. And what they did is they got bigger and they were in color because back then television was still all in black and white. So whatever they could do to, to encourage you to consider movies special and, um, and worth paying a little extra for. Back then, the event movies weren't 25 cents. They were $1.50. This was significantly more expensive. Um, anyway, so that was a wonderful family experience that we would have. Back then, if you went to one of those movies, they would even have brochures, that, like a playbill that you would get in the theater to go to see a movie. And if the movie was really grand, like Around the World in 80 Days, and ran for more than three hours, there was even an intermission. Uh, so it, it was kind of recreating the experience of live theater, but seeing a film. And I remember that fondly because it also was an opportunity to go into New York City um, and, and, and go to a favorite restaurant or, and feel very grown up. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. You, you, you speak about the, the way in which television was at that time rising and threatening Mm -hmm. the film industry mm -hmm. and i think we see something very similar today where the, the the streaming services especially and if not television uh, on its own are producing really high quality content mm -hmm. and people no longer have to go outside their own homes to find this wonderful content um, they can simply turn on a laptop computer and uh, you know watch or their television and watch a series like Breaking Bad on, um, <laughs> I think it was on AMC. It was on AMC, yes. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, no longer do you have to, to venture out to the, to the theater uh, and, mm -hmm. and you know, spend a lot of money for that. Now, you mentioned the, the, the fact that if you're going to be traumatized, you want to be traumatized by, <laughs> by a great work of art. That, to me, is, is really striking. Do you feel like um, in later subsequent conversations with your mother, do you think that she regretted having had you expose yourself so early to what was a traumatic uh, experience at the theater? Or was she uh, more kind of open-minded about that and, and thought that you should maybe um, see these things at, a, at an early age? Um, you've never met my mother, Danielle. This is a woman <laughs> of no regret. Um, she, but um, she, uh, no, she did not regret it. She, I, she was apologetic that she'd forgotten, that's for sure. But, um, and then what she regretted was that I had nightmares for, for several weeks running and, that, and she had to manage those. Um, uh, so that was, the, that was the sum total. There, were, there, there was no philosophical thought that this was um, good for my, uh, to toughen me up somehow. Uh, but uh, it was, but it was memorable for me, um, and it didn't stop me going to, to horror movies. Uh, you know, the, there's um, there's something quite uh, enticing about allowing yourself to be scared and yet knowing that you're safe. And at that time, at that time, do you think your fondness for horror films was kindled, or just your your fondness for cinema in I, general? I would say it's an overstatement to say I have a fondness for horror films. I do enjoy them. They're not my, a favorite genre, but um, but I don't run away from them. Um, uh, my wife, on the other hand, can't be in the same room. Um, I've been I've been writing a chapter on horror films for this book that Noah and I are doing together, um, on uh, which is an introduction to um, uh, 
to film for people who don't know a lot about the history of film and, and particularly who don't necessarily know how films work to try to help them understand and uh, the mechanisms that films use to create an effect and draw you in and, and have you understand the, the, uh, the experience of the character. And it was one of the things that was important to me to, to be part of um, the course I taught called Madness of the Movies at Yale, but also the book I wrote, which is, it's about abnormal psychology and about uh, about the various madnesses and mental illnesses that people can experience but it's also about how films work to portray that and 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 when they get things right when they get things wrong and but either, either way what what do they do to get us to feel the experience of somebody who is not us uh, so um i lost the question what was the question <laughs> <laughs> um, you were, remind me, and because I, I don't want to get off track, and I got off track. No, that's all right. I enjoy these uh, these digressions and these deviations. Uh, we were just talking about um, your fondness for oh, for horror film. Uh, that's horror. what I was. If if that early striking um, experience by which you were totally perturbed and at least mm -hmm. temporarily dramatized, yes if that really drew you into the horror genre and made you think, wow, this so fundamentally shook me that I really want to kind of sink my teeth into it and explore it more. Or was it just this experience, more broadly speaking, of being immersed in this emotional uh, aesthetic experience mm -hmm. that led you to uh, a very deep and abiding appreciation for the cinema in general at that young age? I was um, I, I was always very eclectic. Um, I, I, though there were a lot of horror films on Saturday mornings, there were also musicals and there were also comedies, and uh, and I loved them all. Um, and um, it, it's just that neither the musicals nor the comedies gave me nightmares. So somehow or other, but actually the musicals would give me a joy that I find and they continue to give me. I mean, if if I ever want and need to be in a happy place because I'm feeling a little down in the dumps, I'll just watch Singing in the Rain, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And and we have taught our granddaughters um, the wonders of Singing in the Rain so they can sing at least half of the songs and know all the lyrics and, and mimic half of the dances. Um, and they get a lot of joy out of it too. So one of my pleasures as a grandfather is sharing sharing the things I love. And one of the things I love is movies. But what um, is impossible to mimic is that Gene Kelly smile. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's true. Unique. And and most of his footsteps are impossible to mimic. He's an, extra, I mean, an and, extraordinary. I remember I watched that film uh, just a couple of years ago and uh, was, was just- that, Excuse me, Daniel, was that your first time seeing it? It was, it was. Mm -hmm. Of course I'd heard the music before, but I'd never watched the entirety of the film. I probably had seen pieces of it, you know, the more iconic scenes, um, but I watched that and was just completely uh, overwhelmed by Gene Kelly's talent. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then, I, you know, of course I researched his background and how, you know, he was a dancer in New Jersey and his, I think his brother was a, a dancing instructor as well. And he sort of emerged out of that world. And I was just so taken by his stage presence, right? Mm -hmm. It's so inimitable, the, the smile, the, 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 the happiness that he exudes, especially in that film and, and the way in which he carries his body, the physicality, but also the depth of his acting skills. Um, and I hope that more people in my generation are, are able to go back and find and rediscover these films and, and appreciate their greatness. And that's something that I want to address with you as well. Yeah. Uh, 
By the way, just about this film, you know, one of the mm -hmm. reasons that film works so well is that he has in Donald O'Connor a partner who can dance every bit as well as he can. Yep. Uh, the two of them together are just a marvel. Yeah. And, um, and it's got great songs and it's funny and it's smart because it's making fun of, but somewhat realistically portraying the transformation of movies from silence to sound. So there's a little bit of movie history in there. Um, and um, and uh, it's just, it just has such a feel good feeling to it. Uh, yeah. and it, the good, it the good morning number uh, just is the one that puts a smile on my face. Each yeah, and every yeah. And it, it cap, it's so wholesome and it captures that transition, the seminal yeah. transition from, from the, you know, the, the silent pictures to the spoken word. Uh, it captures it so, so um, expressively. Mm -hmm. uh, now, in contrast, there was a film that was released, I think, just last year called Babylon, mm -hmm. which you may or may not, not have seen. And I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I, I would probably recommend against your, your watching it. it, it but they, uh, Damien Chazelle, I think, is, is the director of that film, yeah. who has yes. quite, a, quite an oeuvre. I mean, he has some excellent films under his, under his belt, including Whiplash. But uh, this film, in my opinion, was just an utter failure. But he tried, at least at the end, to uh, capture the the singing in the rain uh, essence in fact he mm. actually he actually includes that you know images from that film in his own film that's uh, interesting sort of, yeah sort of uh, like, kind of like a meta message that he's trying to send but again he he didn't quite succeed in it um did so you like did you like la la land i I actually did. I mean, I didn't. I didn't love it. I still. I don't think that it quite competes with a film like Singing in the in the Rain. But I thought yeah, it was. I, I thought it was I, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon about that film. Yeah. Uh, because as you know, my understanding was he was trying to do a, you know a brilliant 1950s musical. Um, yeah. And um, but put a dark story in there, which which I which I could have some respect for. But then he uh, chooses actors who can't dance. And that's the great. And they yeah. also can't. And they also can't sing. And that's. And, I was just about to say that for all the the reverence I have for the the, the great and handsome Ryan Gosling, uh, about whom not enough can be said. He he is not quite suited for that. He just isn't. In, you're, in, you're being generous. <laughs> the man has the man has two left feet. Well, um, in case he ever wants to accept an invitation to this show, I need to keep <laughs> hold that door open. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, no, I I joke. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think that's the universal you know criticism of a film like that. But I like the I like the fact that Chazelle is willing to go there to try to create a, a different novel concept and that's you'll you'll soon learn um from me is is one of my constant um disappointments with modern cinema it's just mm -hmm. it's so redundant it's so half-baked and warmed over i mean any time a director is willing and a studio is willing to put forth something that's that's stimulating and novel i at least will will give it uh, a, a um what's the golfing term maybe like a handicap <laughs> i'll handicap it mm -hmm. um, like babylon it was it was daring it failed i think but but it was something new and well let, and let me uh, let, let, let me show that i'm i'm, I'm i, I could be generous to um, him as well which is that i think the opening of la la land is brilliant the mm -hmm. the opening sequence when you have the traffic jam and everyone's traffic, yeah. dancing that is really good and that's in many ways kind of 
it's inventing a new way of doing a dance number. But then when he has the two leads, what is it, Emma Stone and and and, and Ryan Gosling? Uh, I think. Emma, yes. Yeah. Um, and she, you know, she has this wonderful audition moment where 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 it's beautifully acted. But again, she can't sing. Mm -hmm. And she, but she's not asked really to sing. It's kind of a talk song. But when the two of them are trying to do, frankly, probably not Gene Kelly, but Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, um, uh, on this bluff overlooking Los Angeles, it's supposed to be so incredibly re uh, romantic, and neither of the neither of them can bring their get their feet off the ground. I mean, it just it just it was very sad. So I um I I have very mixed feelings about the movie, and, and especially because I do love the idea of trying to recapture the wonderfulness of expressing an emotion physically in dance or in song. And, and um, the best musicals do that. And it's very hard to find a good musical in the last 20 years that, that, that captures that, I say last 20 years, maybe the last 40 years. Um, maybe start this, this, I mean, there are a handful of movies that I admire from the 60s on in in the in the musical genre but most of them um most of them are badly cast and have songs that that for me are not memorable um so yeah, so i'm i'm a fred i'm a fred astaire fan I, I admire gene kelly but fred astaire is my god yeah yeah and and to what do you attribute that sort of lapse in in um in talent do you think that it simply is a matter of talent. Do you think that uh, the actors and the performers of yesteryear were, were just better trained, better performers, had better stage presence? They um, were better trained. Um, very few of them were in movies before they had done it, something else. Almost all of them had been in some kind of theater. Um, even ones who are not famous for being uh, in musicals, uh, had a musical background. They had a, uh, you know, James Cagney was, was a tap dancer. And um, and and you can see that when he is being a gangster and the way he walks has almost a balletic quality to it. Um, he's and then, of course, he did one of the best musicals ever, Yankee Doodle Dandy, mm. um, where he plays George M. Cohan and he dances up a storm. But, you know, he might have had an entire career where he never danced. And yet you know that this is a person who has a physicality that that. that may or may not come naturally, but is very well trained. Um, the studio system did something useful, which was during, you know, during the 30 or 40 years that it existed before it dissolved in the 50s, um, they gave an enormous amount of uh, opportunities for training all their actors. So almost every actor, whether or not they came there knowing how to dance and know how to move, were taught how to move and were taught how to dance and were taught how to sing as best they can. Um, and also a lot of people who had the natural talent and came from theatrical backgrounds then wound up in the movies. We don't have the training ground now, um, and we don't have the opportunities for people to be mediocre but to learn how to be better before they get wind, wind up in an A-level movie because they're good looking. Um, yeah, and do you, do you think it's simply a matter of uh, attraction and name recognition triumphing over the mere, you know, basic talent it seems to be the case i mean you take um ryan gosling is probably the best example in casting him in la la land because you know what what uh, woman middle-aged woman isn't going to go to that film you combine you know the the dreamscape of la and you and you know music and dancing and ryan gosling's face uh, brandished on the 
on the on the poster. Of course, mm -hmm. that's going to be a draw. I'm I'm also thinking of Pierce Brosnan, who was cast mm -hmm. in Mom, in the film production of Mom Perfectly, the guy guy cannot sing a note. Yeah, and again, <laughs> I, you know, a big fan of his. I think he's played a great right, uh, right. a great James no, Bond. Absolutely. But, but yeah, James, but James, Bond is a James Bond doesn't have to sing. Right. Quite the contrary. I mean, he would never, <laughs> never, very monotonous and and uh, and stoic. Um, not exactly the exuberant presence that you would expect in a Mamma Mia rendition. So, right. Again, I think that they're prioritizing, you know, these handsome faces and and illustrious names instead of the, the talent. I think and the ability that really would would. Um, that would sell. And today, I think that problem is exacerbated a little bit mm -hmm. more because now we're bringing in, you know, uh, a topic that's sensitive, but you're bringing in the diversity component where you mm -hmm. need, you know, very specific gender identities and racial groups and sexual persuasions and all sorts of strange, you know, mm -hmm. novel um, uh, categories that I think in the past weren't as seriously considered um, and now bringing them in you you hope that it doesn't risk even further the the talent that has been kind of slipping but uh, but maybe it does so do you think that there could be um, a, a renaissance of of these great musicals that become feature films or do you think that as an art form is best kept in the past and viewed um, no um i mean there what happened sometime in the mid '60s is musicals, um, as a genre, lost um, uh, lost the populace. People people were first of all. I think the main reason for that was that rock uh, music became so central to the culture, and musicals couldn't didn't know how to use that. Um, and and the musicals that that they, they put out had very traditional songs that were inspired more by things from the 1930s and 40s rather than, than the music of the day. And when they started doing rock musicals, um, they also, it was very hard for them to figure out how to put, put them, how to put them in the, within the structures of the standard musical. And it's, it's still an issue. The other part that we haven't address, uh, addressed that I would want to say is important is that it's not just that they, they have um, people who don't know how to do the basics that are necessary for a musical, singing and dancing. Um, because uh, several of the movies do have very good and talented and unknown performers who become known because they're really good. The, the, the new Steven Spielberg West Side Story is, is filled with a handful of, of, of dancers um, and actors who um, do not have a name and who made a major impression in the film because they're good at, at what they're expected to do. They can dance and they can sing. But the other thing that has been lost is is how dance is photographed. And um, famously, Fred Astaire insisted that every single dance number was shown with the dancer's body being shown in whole. In, you never cut to his feet, you never cut to his hands. Um, you saw Fred Astaire dancing, uh, and you saw Ginger Rogers dancing, and, you, and, and there were cuts, but the cuts would be a change of angle showing their full bodies at all times. Dance needs to be allowed to express itself by the whole body. And as soon as you start focusing in, what, what, what happened was a lot of, um, a, a lot of the, the quick editing that has, has become the kind of norm uh, of more modern movies, some of it's really good for suspense and action films, but it totally destroys the sense of place and the sense of, of, of grace. Um, when you're watching a dance.
no matter what kind of dance, whether it's hip hop, whether it's tap dancing, whether it's 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 more formal uh, ballroom or ballet dancing, if you don't see the entire body, you're not getting the whole experience. And I think that's a major loss. Um, a movie that people admired was the film of Chicago, and I thought it was desperately bad. Why? Because they were constantly showing us feet, arms, um, everything but the whole body. Uh, and they had some really good dancers there. Um, and um, and so they undid, um, they, they took something away from what they normally might have been able to bring to the screen by not trusting to allow us to see the entire performer. Um, and, and that was, to me, a dismaying movie, uh, dismaying because Chicago's a really good musical. And um, the other thing they did was, was with, with great arrogance, um, replace the uh, choreography of Bob Fosse with, with uh, Rob Marshall's choreography, and he's no Bob Fosse. Oh, so, so uh, by the way, they used to do something bad like that in musicals of the, of, the, of, of the days when musicals were popular in the 40s and 50s. They take a really good musical that had 12 brilliant songs for Broadway, and they would bring it into the movies, and they would drop half of the songs and replace them with mediocre ones. That happened too, way too often. They always somehow thought that they had to fiddle with it to create new value, and they often removed what was so special about the original production. So, so you know, you can. There's no period that you can say did everything right. But the Fred Astaire musicals are pretty close to that, and most of the Arthur Freed musicals, which are the ones that Gene Kelly did uh, for MGM, are are close to perfect. In part because really great songs, really good dances, shown in whole. Gene Kelly was every bit as insistent about that. You always saw Gene Kelly from head to toe. Um, and yeah, uh, to our great benefit, <laughs> all yeah. of us. Yeah. Yes, right. Uh, that's that's a theme on which Noah and I, in our conversation a few weeks ago, briefly touched, and that is uh, the rapidity, the near vertiginous rapidity um, with which scenes are cut. Now, he was foreshadowing the book um, uh, on which the two of you are collaborating, about which mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit later. Oh, okay. I think, I think it's fascinating, but without revealing too much. Um, but... Yeah, that's something as a as a viewer of film, both modern and classic. That's one of the most glaring differentiations is the the rapidity I think at which the mm -hmm. scenes are cut, especially action scenes, and mm -hmm. also the dance numbers. You know, to which mm -hmm. you just alluded. Uh, maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Do you think that um, our general our generally deficient attention spans are driving that editorial choice, or do you think perhaps it's the opposite? Do you think that because we're now so accustomed to these short, chopped clips that are uh, that populate, you know, our TikTok videos and Instagram reels and YouTube shorts that are really, really quickly spliced, maybe even maybe like a second long? Do you think that's driving our uh, deficiency in attention? Um, I think it may be two very, two different things. I, it's clear that attention spans are, are seriously compromised. Um, in part, people get used to not having to, to pay attention to anything for more than a few seconds. And, and so they wind up getting impatient um, and maybe even lose some of the skill to be able to sit quietly and absorb something and allow it to reveal itself rather than to have it pushed into their faces. Uh, 
but I think many of the things uh, in terms of the new editing techniques in the last 30 or 40 years um, where the editing is is for an action sequence particularly is quicker uh, is, is is quite wonderful because it really can it, it increases the intensity and it really gets you um, absorbed in the action but it's often done badly One, you know as a uh, as a parallel to the to to my comments about about making sure that when you film the dance you film the whole person, one of the things that is very important in an action sequence is to be able to make sure that all everyone in the audience knows where all the characters are at all times, no matter how violent and extreme the uh, the fight might be. And some directors are really good at that. Um, Paul Greengrass, for instance, who did a couple of the Bourne movies. Uh, the Bourne movies are just up there with with probably the best action movies going. They're, they out Bond, uh, James Bond, um, uh, without a doubt. But um, what's really good about it is that he you always know where you are in space. So um, there can be a, 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 a there can be a lot of quick cutting for the various motions that are that are showing that um, that someone is being particularly aggressive or or doing a particularly violent move. But you're always knowing who's in the room and, 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 and where, where they are in space. And that allows you to really experience the, um, the action sequence. As soon as it gets so hectic that you have no idea who's, who's on top, who's on bottom, and, and, and who's winning, and you're not going to know that because you, know, you never pull back enough to see everyone in the place they are as a whole body before you go down and, 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 and pay attention to somebody's hand, which is now a fist, and somebody else who has a weapon. Um, as long as you don't um, do allow uh, allow the moment of um, of awareness of of where something is happening, uh, I think you lose a lot of uh, of the continuity of the story and um, and a lot of the impact of of the sequence. Many directors just don't know how to do that. They they're really good at hectic, but they're not really really good at showing. And um, the better directors do both. And especially in action uh, films, and um, so I don't know that that has to do with attention span. It really is 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 making sure that um, you have you really understand what you're seeing, and you're give, given all the information you need to really appreciate it and enjoy it. And uh, and again, what's wonderful is when you've got people who know how to do it right. And uh, and we've got a lot of folks out there who know how to do it right, and a lot of folks who are highly regarded. Who don't? Yeah. So, and you count among those who know how to do it correctly, and perhaps best of all, um, uh, as the the director of the Bourne franchise, or at yes. least the yeah. early Bourne films. Yeah, I think they've had two directors. Yeah. Greengrass did two of them. Greengrass. So, get, can you give us a few other examples, either recent or from the, you know, the the, the you know relatively recent past of really well executed action films? Some that may, might rank, you know, among your top, let's say, five excluding the born which maybe might take the first place mm -hmm. um i think you may be stumping me I'm, I'm, I'm nothing comes to mind immediately um what have i seen recently that's an action film ah the the john wick movies um are well done yes. and uh, i haven't seen many of them i just in fact for the first, very first time saw john wick the first one and i thought that was extremely well done i don't know i don't remember who directed that but I think it's I think it was quite good in 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 the exact kinds of things I'm talking about. There's a lot of violence in that movie. In fact, it's almost nothing but. Um, but you always know, first of all, there's there's a motivation. The bad guys killed his dog. 
so we've got it. We've got a reason that he's going crazy about this. But then, um, oh, and the other one that was a very good movie recently is a movie called Nobody, um, which um, oh, I'm blocking his name. The the um, the fellow uh, who's the star of Better Call Saul. Um, can you? Remember? Oh, 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 yeah. I, I don't. Uh, Bob, Bob, Bob yeah. Odenkirk. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, this was the first thing I think he did after Better Call Saul ended. Now that was a really good show, by the way, and Breaking Bad is brilliant. Um, and in fact, that entire series I would point to as they knew how to do action, they knew how to do drama, they knew how to do satire, they knew how to do comedy. Um, they just had it all together. And they were relentless at keeping um, your blood pressure and up and your heart pounding. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I love the fact that- And your cortisol, your cortisol levels high. And <laughs> I, I I actually did what I think was probably the best way of watching that, which is I actually didn't watch Breaking Bad for the first two years. It took me a while to realize that it was out there. And mm. when, so when, when I started watching it, I binged watch it um, with our next door neighbor and his wife would come and um, we would binge watch it together. Two episodes at least every night, yeah. sometimes three nights a week. And we then we would watch one episode, then another, and then we kind of look at each other and say, "One more." It was kind of like <laughs> like peanuts. Um, and what I was did, brilliant, it, just so you know, I approached it in the same way. I, I binged it in my own way um, uh -huh. years, uh, a couple of years after the, the the first season was released. Right. I, well, that, I think that's the way to do it because one of the things that happens definitely in the first few seasons, I think they they slow down a little bit later, but. Um, each episode was like a heartbeat after the, the previous episode. There was the, the action continued. Um, it was not like two weeks later, this kind of thing. It was one split second later. Oh, oh yeah, you'd have the you know the the death of Jesse's drug-addled girlfriend, right? right. Uh, you know, whom <laughs> Walt with from whom Walt withheld uh, any any services. Right. <laughs> yes. And then the next, the very next episode, he's like, "You're right back in that room the morning of." Right. Uh, you know, where do you go from here? So yeah, I I agree. Yeah. It was so, anyway, so I'm, that's a film that was just done by professionals and done really well, mm -hmm. uh, and they knew what they were doing. They knew how to do it. Um, and so, uh, but nobody's really no. That's a good one too. And that is also relentlessly uh, violent, but the violence is 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 you always know who's doing what to whom and why, and that really helps. And that grabs you. That makes that makes you invested in the movie. It makes you want, you know, want to be rooting for somebody and um, and and trying to understand why people are doing the things that they're doing. And but uh, and um, and that, that that film grabbed me. That was a good one. And the John yeah. Wick did fruit too. But I think nobody was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, nobody's a film of which I, I think I saw a small portion, but was taken by the action sequences and the violence. Uh, I think that it was surprising to see uh, what what is the actor's name? The better Bob o Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk. It's, it's yes. always it's always um, un not unsettling, but surprising to see uh, actors inhabiting different roles from what you mm -hmm. from what you would expect. You know, and and for him to inhabit this role was really um, startling for me, but I really enjoyed it. And as for John Wick, you're right. I think I first watched it um, kind of mindlessly on a on a plane ride, <laughs> and was just completely sucked into it. And it's funny because there is a bit of a cult around Keanu Reeves. <laughs> he's, this, mm -hmm. he's this enigmatic figure in a, in a, in a in, in an industry um, that I think. Um, 
I don't know. It, it's kind of an industry of conformity. It's strange to say that because, uh, you know, you would think that there are a bunch of eccentric artistic types, but at least maybe ideologically, a lot of them are kind of walk in lockstep and Keanu Reeves always just seems like this outcast among, uh, right. among, among others. So I well, think he's had, he's had an interesting career. You know, he, he's, he's a, a good looking guy. He moves well, he's a good actor and he's played a whole, he's played everything from, you know, from drug addled uh, yeah, <laughs> adolescent yeah, yeah, yeah. to, to uh, uh, Bill, uh, from uh, Bill and Ted Miller. to, to, yeah, to Neo. Ted, yeah. Yeah. To, to uh, um, and so, iconic roles. I mean, I mean, the matrix of course is an iconic film and, and John right. Will, Will uh, Wick has, garnered this, like I said, sort of a cult following that, you know, and so much so that there are what, four iterations of the film now it's become mm -hmm. in its own. Now, uh, now I'm not, I, I'm not moved to, uh, I, I was very happy with John Wick. I'm not sure I need to see another one. Um, yeah. Let uh, alone someone, four. <laughs> right. Or much less four. Somebody might have to tell me something that makes me something that's different or interestingly varied in them, because I have a feeling that they're basically the same thing over and over again. But yeah. I, that may, I may be wrong. No, I, you're absolutely correct. But it's the Keanu effect. Let's right. let's talk about that just briefly. I mentioned it earlier. It's this redundancy that we see in in Hollywood today. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just take the the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the most obvious example. You have how mm -hmm. many iterations of Iron Man and the Hulk and uh, you know Thor. Um, Disney similarly is now releasing the little mermaid right and you know it's i guess it's it's interesting in some regard in that they're they're bringing it to lot you know live action and they're sort of anthropomorphizing these little creatures under the sea and i don't know to how successfully they're doing that but they look a little uncanny to me but you know at least it's it's a little different the story's pretty much the same uh, but again it feels like there's just a it but the only, the only justification, yeah, it me. feels as though we're at an ebb of creativity, and and, and maybe that's not completely true, but it, in some in some regards, it feels that way. It feels like the studios are just producing for profit, and of course, I mean that's you know you, you need to run a, a business in a certain way. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll release the Shape of Water, a film you know a very kind of niche film, and it'll capture the Oscar for Best Picture. Um, so that's not a film that's going to bring in a lot of money, and I understand that. To, to to be to enable them to produce a film like that, whether or not it, it it is a good film on its merits is a different matter. But to enable them to do that, they have to you know produce ten uh, you know Lion King renditions or or Toy Story fives or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think like me that that the cinema Hollywood is is in something of a low ebb creatively or or where you know how do you perceive it? Uh, I think it's definitely at a low ebb creatively. I, mean, I think um, The Little Mermaid is a good example. There was absolutely no reason on earth to do a live action, a so-called live action version, because I understand that, what is it, Haley Berry is the, is the, the mermaid? Um, I, I think so. But um, I think she and the, and the prince are the humans, and, and everything else is, is CGI. Everything else is computer-generated. So they're calling it a live-action movie, but it's basically a computer-action movie with a few live people in it. And that the only thing that might possibly justify it is diversity, is the possibility that, okay, you know, the, the mermaid is now a, a woman of color. Um, but otherwise, there's no reason to make this movie except to make money.
Um, some, somebody thought this is a film that everybody loved back then. And so maybe they'll love it again now if we do it with a twist. And that's the twist. Um, but usually, almost universally, the, uh, the live action version of, of, of the better Disney cartoons are, are second rate. I, I, I don't know of one that's really well done. I think maybe Beauty and the Beast was not bad. But, um, but not bad is not singing its praises. Uh, but, uh, but I think these franchise films are being made simply for money, and they're just kind of throwing the dice and seeing if, you know, can, can we come up with a slightly different combination of superheroes? Um, the chapter I just finished in the book that we're not supposed to be talking about, which um, uh, that I'm doing with Noah, I just finished the, the chapter we're going to do on horror films. And I, so I had the pleasure of watching a whole lot of horror, horror films that I maybe hadn't seen in 40 years or had never seen. And, um, and it's clear to me, and, but, but I certainly was the sense I've had over the years, is the, the horror films are, have sequels on top of sequels. I mean, Friday the 13th, number 47. Uh, and, um, and invariably what happens is that the first one like the Nightmare on Elm Street is an absolutely brilliantly scary and very creative horror film. What could be more frightening that if you go to sleep, your your nightmare is going to come and kill you, in, and it's going to really come and kill you. It's not just going to scare you awake. Uh, that's a brilliant concept, and it's one we can identify with because we all sometimes sleep badly and sometimes have a bad dream that we are very glad we wake up from. So this was a, you know, this was a brilliant inspiration by Wes Craven, and it was really well done with a very good cast. And then they do sequels, and Wes Craven has nothing to do with the early sequels. They have a new director and a new writer, and since they killed off most of the teenagers, they have to have new actors. And so the only consistency is the monster, um, Freddy Krueger, and um, and. Uh, maybe the setting and maybe maybe the final girl because most of these movies famously have the one surviving teenager who's usually a girl who and is usually one who's who's um uh sexually pure uh, uh as against her her um her her uh promiscuous friends all of whom get killed for their for their labors um, but um so maybe you have the final girl you have the monster and you've got the nightmares but you don't have the inspiration, you don't have the creativity, and frankly, they don't know what to do with it. So they either retread something that's been done already, or they or they stretch it in a way that defeats the 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 logic structure. You know, even fantasy films, even films with magic or supernatural, have to have a logical structure that makes sense within the story. And if you violate that, the audience is going to object. They're going to have a hard time with it. Um, th there's a violation in the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and I'm fresh about it because I just watched it, which is the uh, the very closing sequence where, and it turns out that the, the closing sequence sets up the fact that Freddy Krueger is still alive and therefore we may make more movies. Why is it there? And it's a violation because Freddy Krueger was clearly and completely dead, wiped out, eliminated. And then all of a sudden he's back and he's back. Why? Because they, the producers said, we want to be able, able to have a sequel. And so it's a it's a what a sixty second add on piece where all of a sudden the mother and three of the friends, all of whom have been killed in the movie, are alive again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you sacrifice a lot to enable you to produce that next film. Right, <laughs> and, exactly. And it's a it, it's a cheap kind of um, I don't know meretricious uh, sacrifice that they, oh, that, it, they all, that they all that they all embark upon. It's <laughs> cheap and it's cheating. 
And mm -hmm. um, and if the film is good enough, you kind of don't notice it until you've thought about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. But either way, um, you're likely to be disappointed by the sequel, except that if all you're looking for is the thrills of watching people gruesomely be killed. And obviously there's an audience for that. But the movies are likely to be mediocre. Now, every once in a while, there's one that is as good as or as better. You know, if Godfather is famous, that Godfather 2 was probably a better movie. And Godfather 1 was brilliant and Godfather 2 was brilliant plus. Um, so, but that doesn't happen very often. And, and Godfather 2 had a justification, not just that we were going to, um, we were going to uh, repeat the formula, but we were going to film the rest of the novel, which included a background of the major characters, including what they, what they were doing and how they got their way that way from, the, from their younger days, which was not in the original movie. So there's value, there's story, there's, there's depth that was added in Godfather 2. And also they kept all the same actors and, and the same writer and the same director. So these so people in, are committed. In, so in response to the, the insoluble debate over uh, Godfather 1 versus 2, it sounds as though you, you take the side of the second one. I take the side of the second one, but I think Godfather 1 is brilliant. I mean, it's a See, wonderful... My, my partiality inclines me toward number one, just because okay. I, lo I love Marlon Brando. I, I like, I'm a... Right. I'm a Brando boy. I, you know, I'm a, just well. So, he's brilliant. He's absolutely yeah, brilliant in that, yeah. and that film is brilliant. And Godfather mm -hmm. Two is also brilliant. And I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't fight you loving Godfather One. <laughs> if you speak to me tomorrow, that, it's purely it. for the Brando. It's purely the Brando factor. I mean, I mean mm -hmm. if you know, substitute anybody else for him, and then certainly I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, then elevate one over two. But that that would be my that would. But be in, my in Godfather Two, we get De Niro becoming Brando. And and mm -hmm. he's not Brando, but mm -hmm. he's pretty darn good. He's yeah, he's good. He's good. But yeah, still, I'm I'm a I just I love Brando. Maybe probably my favorite, one of my favorite actors. But anyway, uh, I, to me, that's an ex example. I mean, example that a sequel can be justified and can be really good. But you have to have a reason to make it besides that we need to make more money. Right. So there are certain criteria to which you must hold yourself if you are going to make that uh, that sequel in you know in a in a sort of justifiable way, not just for profit. And right. it sounds like it has to have purpose. I mean, it has to continue the story arc or complete the story in such a way that is that is fulfilling and, and satisfying or unsatisfying, but it has to, you know, it has to have um, sort of a definitive meaning that one can easily discern. <laughs> I was, let me just say, I, as you were describing um, the way in which, <laughs> you know, Friday the 13th is continually made and remade uh, the image that came to my mind perhaps it's a bit morbid it's almost like taking the healthy body of the first film uh, and bleeding it and putting leeches on it and continually mm -hmm. purging it and just sort of you know every little every time you do that it maybe <laughs> um, diminishes the vigor of of the initial story of what there was the essence until you know what do you have this withered corpse that's pallid and you know un un uh, lifeless and i think that's where a lot of these horror films find themselves and i daniel i think you have just d defined a really good new horror film <laughs> Some, uh, somebody's creating an undead monster from the from the from the body of what had been a healthy movie yeah 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 oh boy that'll be that'll be kind of trippy on a, a couple different levels but <laughs> Actually, I should say here, not to get too off course, but 
as we were talking about rock musicals. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll have to talk about this maybe uh, when we're not recording. <laughs> but there is an idea that I've been that I've had gestating for a while, and I'm <laughs> I, I might be embarking on writing my own uh, rock musical. So stay tuned for that, all, all my listeners. But I'll, Dr. Charney, I'll tell you a little bit more about that <laughs> uh, when we're when we're off off the record. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. But um, I have to ask: Are you um, are you strong enough to endure these countless hours of immersion in these horror films, or do you feel as though after having spent so much time in them? Uh, you are traumatized once again, as you were at, at the age of eight when you were going to the 25 cent. Uh, uh, I actually mentioned something to my wife the other day, by the way, who has been hiding in the other room for all the time <laughs> I've been looking at horror films because she has no, no tolerance for them. And I should uh, say, let me interrupt, having read her book and mm -hmm. greatly enjoyed it. it. Now it's really painting a picture for me <laughs> because for those of you unacquainted with, with, your, um, with your wife, she was a professor of French literature at Yale University. Yes. Uh, you also taught. And uh, she's, from what I can tell, a, a brilliant woman and, and uh, very eloquent. And her writing is, is so mellifluous. And now I'm trying to imagine her in the same room with you as you watch Friday, Friday the Thirteenth version. Not going to happen. Twenty three, <laughs> as she's you know as she's contemplating Marcel Proust uh, and Jean Paul she, Sartre. Could, she could she could not tolerate Breaking Bad, uh, so uh -huh. it, was, it was me and our next door neighbors. Uh, my wife was not in the room. On the other hand, she was totally absorbed by the entire six years of The Sopranos. So go so figure. I was, I was just about to use that as an example of of my having immersed myself in a in a certain series that is i think uh, morally unsettling <laughs> to put mm -hmm. it to put it uh, mildly and mm -hmm. i was watching the sopranos and, and enjoying the uh, the importance of that series and really appreciating it for the its cultural relevance and the fact that it is esteemed as one of the great series of all time uh, but after like season 2 or 3 4 i i just started to feel like and I'm from New Jersey. I just started to feel like I was becoming morally degraded after, you know, <laughs> watching each episode every single night. So, and I didn't have a, you know, a good way of remedying that. I so I had to. Oh, you, so you were you were binging The Sopranos. Huh? Um, yeah, but again, my my binge is not the the normal binge. Like I might watch thirty minutes at a time, but I'll watch it every maybe every night. So I'm not watching three to five hours of Sopranos every day. Mm -hmm. consecutively i might watch uh, you know a, a portion of a show maybe three days consecutively so to me that's a binge it's sort of like a, a half serious binge but still well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by that so you wouldn't even watch a full episode you you would you no, no, no. i i should i should say um i for a if the show is like 45 minutes to an hour, yes, I will. I'll try to extend it out to a, a full show. Breaking Bad, I think that was more like a like a thirty minute episode. I no, think. no, no. Breaking Bad was, was one it, hour each. Give or was take it an hour? Five okay, so I might be misrepresenting my approach. Usually, I would try to get through an entire episode, but I wouldn't do multiple episodes on one day. I wouldn't binge in that in that way. Was it but was it because it was too overwhelming for you, or or because uh, we're not dealing attention span, Daniel? Because you no. certainly somebody who seems like he's got a good attention span. No, 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 no. I think my attention is is mature enough to be able to handle it, and and, um, and I have the endurance. I think for me, it's 
when you're trying to work through a series and you have other projects on which you want to be working, like if it's right, sometimes I feel a little guilty. Like if I'm sitting oh, down, every, yeah, every single night, if you're, you know, okay, here's an hour devoted to the Sopranos when, you know, if I can watch most of it and then kind of start working on a, a song or a, or an article or a, right. an episode or something like that. Th that's, that, that's always my issue. And it's not the best approach because I know you really, you do need to devote the time and have the appropriate attention to, to really absorb and to, you know, appreciate these works. But I yeah. did find over the course of a few seasons of Sopranos exposure, I just felt like, man, you know, am, am I, am I being, am I <laughs> entering a stage of moral decadence and decay? Mm. Am I, am I going to end up next to, next to Tony <laughs> in, you know, with the fishes or, you know, any of his com compatriots? So how do you guard yourself against that? Uh, it, that it's risk? an interesting thing because I just, I just saw the um, final episode of Succession, which is a, a, a show on HBO that I had enjoyed. Um, and uh, and they just ended the run, which is a, a it's been a four year run, and there you're immersing yourself in really bad people doing really bad things, not not murderously bad things, but just morally bad things, um, and, which is uh, in many ways worse, um, uh, 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 and also kind of glorying in 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 rich people um, being unhappy. So. Uh, does it affect my moral compass? I don't know, um, but I, it may it may numb us to um, to bad behavior um, by finding it entertaining. I mean, these people are really bad, but they come up with some of the best verbal insults that you can ever imagine. I don't know if you've seen anything of Succession, but it is a very very smart show, and um, it's filled with incredibly smart and vulgar put downs. Um, that are, are, are or would be quotable um, uh, if, if, if this wasn't a PG-13 uh, podcast. Um, this podcast has no rating. <laughs> I know, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. But, um, in part because I, I can't remember them myself, yeah, because, yeah. but they are very witty. And in fact, I just saw a compilation of somebody putting together the, the best of four years of the put-downs. The, these are siblings who are who rival, uh, rivaling with each other to see who's going to take over the major company. Um, and they have a, a world-class, terrible father who, who um, kind of plays them against each other, uh, making it, offering each of them that they're going to get the the prize, and then, but not honestly wanting any of them to get the prize. And then he he and they and then they did something very bold, which is they finally killed him off. They, the the uh, the, uh, the head of the company died this season. But of course, the the title of the show is Succession, and as the writer said, I had to allow the story to move forward, and sure. the succession couldn't happen until the the uh, uh, the founder was no longer there. Um, but he he was just uh, uh, not the moral centerpiece, but he was the dramatic center of of the of the, the uh, show. And I was I thought my, they're going to lose something major now that he's gone. But in fact, uh, the story was compelling to the end. And uh, and we are watching very bad people behave badly uh, in in a, in, a, in a universe that feels not like our own because um, I, I I can't suddenly decide to get into a plane and fly to Barbados because I want to meet somebody for lunch, but um, but they can, but morally be questionable because all their choices are so narcissistically selfish, and and also thoughtless. Uh, with with one thought in mind, I want to win. 
So at, Sopranos, at I think Sopranos, I always thought of as a family drama. And, and, and to me, um, what was powerful about it was, was the, uh, the, this, this guy was doing really bad things, uh, but it was all he had ever known because he was pretty much brought up to believe that this world, this, this, this um, mafia world that, that, that he was part of, this organized crime world, um, that, that's what he knew. And now we should know you don't you you don't mean family friendly. Uh, no, it's not family. No, no, it's no, a family no, no. drama. It's in a very not different family way. friendly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. It's not I, family no, I, friendly. Just, I, just like the I movie. Agree. Just like I, excuse me, Daniel. Just like sure. the movie Night at the Hunter, which is based on a children's fairy tale, an imagined one, is not a movie I would ever sh show children. Right. I I would say um, it's interesting that you point that out. The fact that The Sopranos is in succession is in some ways a family drama that that makes me think and i've never thought this before that it's akin to tragedy in a certain way because you know fundamentally tragedy as originally conceived is supposed to it's supposed to involve sort of an aristocratic or high uh, highly reputed or highly ranking individual like think of oedipus right mm -hmm. And he is subject to fate in a similar way that maybe Tony Soprano is subject to fate. He enters into this existence kind of in the world of the mafioso. I mean, he, mm -hmm. you, know, you you see this through his father's interactions with his, his mother and right. you know, the end to which his father ultimately comes. And, and, you know, the way that his mother kind of carries on in a certain way, uh, but certainly Tony could she, change. She, she was a brilliantly nasty character. Yeah, yeah. I was happy to see her put in the old folks' home. <laughs> um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah, just a terrible character. But again, uh, you know, this isn't um, a life that Tony volitionally was able to choose or to steer away from. Perhaps, you know, he does have free will. He could have. But there is something predestined in, in his in his realm, in his existence. And, you know, if you're really reading deep into it, I think it is tragic in that way that, that he that he's entering into into this this life um, to which the you know, the, the fates have sort of led him. So it's so it's really interesting in that way. And when you say family drama, I think I think we can really we can really explore that theme and succession, I think, by the way you describe it might be similar in that regard. You know, you're talking about wealthy aristocratic individuals, you know, who are dealing with the, you know, the complexities of the, you know, the business or whatever, the enterprise over which they are presiding and the ways in which they, they are moving it from one generation to the next. But, you know, these people are stuck in this as an accident of birth. They were born into this. So, you know, that, that's something with which they have to grapple, but, you know, for which they didn't really have a vote. <laughs> They're just in it. Now, right. I, I, I don't mean to be too, uh, esoteric and, and bring in, you know, ideas of ancient Greek, you know, poetics, but I, I'm also reminded of, of Aristotle and his idea of catharsis in his poetics. He describes this as one of the, the central purposes of, of drama, tragedy mm -hmm. specifically, but it's this idea of catharsis and uh, catharsis is understood a little bit differently in, in modern, you know, language. But back then it meant sort of a purging. It was supposed to uh, be morally uplifting by, by cleansing you of all the, you know, terror and uh, slaughter and uh, moral 
corruption that you would view on the stage. At the end, there was supposed to be something that that kind of um, restored you back to a to a more edified place. Uh, do you think a lot of our films and series today lack that essential Aristotelian feature? I know that's a, kind of a I, uh, yeah, I would say question. that they do. In fact, I think I think uh, the modern way is to leave it quite ambiguous or um, or unclear as to whether or not um, any any of the characters were going to be able to experience a catharsis, much less than anyone in the audience. I mean, think think about the famous ending for The Sopranos. Um, but what is powerful in The Sopranos and why I think of it as a family story is that from very, from the very first episode, and, and you know, they had no idea they were going to go six years. The, you know, they, they planned a year and then when it became a big hit and it took a while for that to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't successful instantly, but by the end of the first year, it had, it had a, a real buzz. And by the end of the second year, it was a cult. Um, uh, in the first episode, he, he winds up going to see a psychiatrist because he has a panic attack when he sees the ducks fly away from his swimming pool. And so the authors knew what they were doing because what that, the subject that, and which came out in the psychotherapy, uh, early on in one of the first episodes, not the very first, but in, within the first season, was that he saw the ducks as a family and he was hit in, you know, in a way that, that, that struck him so emotionally that he panicked and he found himself feeling like he was having a heart attack and he was breathing hard um, uh, and he, I think he fainted. Um, and um, what he was experiencing was the loss of family. And throughout the entire series, he's a, he's doing he talks about doing everything that he's doing, killing people to protect his family and create a, 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 a better life for his kids. And he sees it not happen. What, ha what he sees is his wife, who knew what he was doing from day one, but winds up kind of turning a, a blind eye to it. And so she becomes morally corrupted, even though she doesn't do she never does a bad thing but she accepts staying with him and the kids are a mess and, and, um, and neither of them is, is, is strong enough to be entering into the mafia world, but they're not really strong enough to do anything at the end of this story. So, so he's, he has, he ends not just being killed because it's probably reflects the fact that he was, he was killed at the end. Um, it's left unclear brilliantly left unclear um but in fact if he was killed at the end then probably the rest of the family was killed too because i would they be so specific that they would only take an automatic to to tony when he's sitting right next to his wife and his two kids are on the other side of the booth mm -hmm. you, you will never know but even if nobody else dies um his family is is severely compromised and will be forever because of the choices he made that's tragedy. Yeah, I, I agree. And to draw a link, you can you can look at Walter White and his behavior, uh, right, in regard to his family as well. And mm -hmm. Again, not not as tragically fated, I don't think, as Tony Soprano was, but he made decisions, uh, similarly motivated decisions, to enable his family to prosper whether it be with him in this world or outside it or beyond it <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> well, if you remember, um, again, this is actually something I think the uh, the creators either lost track of on purpose or 
maybe not on purpose, but the original reason that he got into the uh, drug business, Walter White, is that he got a, a diagnosis of a, of a terminal cancer. Of course. So, so his issue was, I want to leave my family with some money when I'm gone. Somehow he managed to su survive for six years of the Breaking Bad and not look at all sick. So um, they, I think they lost track of that um, on purpose. But um, and and uh, and you know it doesn't end well for him. But so uh, I was reading an article. What was what was it about? Oh, it was it was actually talking about succession and mentioning uh, Breaking Bad, and talking about there was an iconic moment which I had forgotten, where uh, Walter White is repeatedly saying, "I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my family." And at one point near the end of the series, he says, "I did this for myself." Uh huh. Uh -huh. And and I had forgotten that, and it it it, it is in fact a real moment. And yeah, uh, that might mark the full transformation from Walter White to the Heisenberg um, right. uh, ego. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, or id. I'm not sure. <laughs> or id. Right. Right. No, he loved being Heisenberg. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, uh, again, this is there's a tragedy there. Um, he was going to die anyway. He wanted his family to 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 have some way of living well after he was gone and then he found himself stimulated and excited by what he discovered he could do so well um, which was to to concoct meth yeah yeah uh, which i learned was actually a some sort of um like a rock candy i, I learned later that they <laughs> they concocted a like a sugary blue mm -hmm. Oh, you mean it, what, raspberry, what, blueberry, what they were rock looking candy. like? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And I, I read in an interview that uh, between takes, I think when they were deep in the basement. Actually, I think I saw. I think this was an interview on on YouTube on that. Now that I think of it, that that hot hot ones show where they they have the guest eat a hot wing and you know. Oh yes, I like that show. Yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant and creative show. But yeah, Walter White confesses that. I think during one of the scenes they were filming down in the lair um, mm -hmm. in the meth lab, you know, overseen by Gus and you know the, the cartel. Uh, they Aaron Paul was sneaking <laughs> nibbles it's, it's of the nibbles of the, of the pretend of meth, the product, yeah. and it was rock candy. And you know, of course, <laughs> um, uh, Brian Cranston is famous for you know, stick, you know being very serious on set and kind of sticking to character. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a great attribute because it shines through in all of his work. Again, I rank him as one of the best actors out there today uh, but uh you know he he kind of sh kind of uh, meekly uh, succumbed to, to, he, he to, up paul's, to paul's encouragement and he and he nibbled <laughs> on the on the rock can and then they started you know eating that's funny <laughs> copious amounts. yeah so uh, just so again just so so many stories from that show and again another duo um that that worked brilliantly together. You mentioned the you know singing in the rain with Connell and and um, Kelly earlier. We we look at Aaron Paul and uh, uh, you and, know and, and Grant Grant. Yeah. yeah. Who, who are some of your other favorite duos? Your favorite teams of actors or actresses that that joined together and absolutely. Well, know, these go back. These go back. First of all, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, the best. Um, Fred Astaire mm -hmm. have many, many good partners, but never anyone as good as, as Ginger. Um, and um, uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Um, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, and also Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, and also Cary Grant with um, um, Audrey Hepburn. Uh, they did several movies together. Uh, who else? 
Oh, Myrna Loy and um, William Powell in the Fin Man series. Absolutely brilliant couple. Um, uh, and they, now that's that's a series, interestingly, that where they, I think they did five of them, but I would say at least two or three of them were worth doing. They, 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 these were these were sequels where they added value, and then they started repeating themselves. But they're comic uh, detective stories. Have you seen any of the the, the Thin Man movies? I have not. No, oh, and I plan to. They're, 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 what's wonderful is they're a married couple, and they and they act like a married couple who are really crazy about each other, but also. Um, uh, can barely tolerate each other's bad habits, um, and and uh, and he's a. I guess he was a former detective who was retired, but he winds up kind of getting uh, getting uh, enticed back into into detective work. But he's got an assortment. He knows all of the downbeat um, uh, uh, minor gangsters in town, all of whom um, a few of them he's put in jail, but they still greet him with with great uh, enthusiasm because they like his company. And he drinks too much. Uh, back back then, um, it was not. Um, Nobody was was the least bit self conscious about these people kind of being mildly drunk for most of the movie, um, and but the dialogue between the husband and wife is just it's just precious and it's very funny, um, and um, she's she's always rolling her eyes at his um, as the people he brings home, um, and uh, and it's just it's just really well done and it was based on a Dashiell Hammett uh, uh, novel uh, called The Thin Man. And what is the acting duo there in that? In uh, that scene? Myrna Loy and William Powell. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, these are all names with which I need to acquaint myself much more, uh, you know. Uh, you know, Daniel, one of the things early. that was, was an inspiration for the, the, this Mandis at the Movies book um, that I wrote um, and the course that I taught was discovering that the Yale students that, that I uh, had an opportunity to teach had almost no experience about movies of movies that were much before when they were born. Um, I, I, mostly, I had seniors taking my class. It was meant to, meant to be a senior sem seminar, which means that these these students are about to leave. They're about to you know, embark on the next um, chapter of their lives, and here they are, seniors at Yale, and they have never seen a movie that was in black and white. They've never seen a movie that that came out before like 1970. Maybe they saw an, on YouTube, they saw the shower scene from Psycho, but they've never seen the movie. Um, and so my one of my agendas was, hey, you guys, there's a whole world of films out there that you're going to want to know about because they're brilliant. And And by the way, a lot of the films you're seeing today are stealing from these old movies. So you might as well see where, where the original ideas and the original ways of doing it came right. from. So um, I would I made a point of showing older movies and universally, and I mentioned this in the book, I was thanked by the students saying, my God, you've opened a new world for me. I want to see more movies by Ingmar Bergman. I want to see more movies by Fellini. I want to see more Hitchcock films. Um, and who the heck is William Powell? Boy, I'm going to be excited about that. That wasn't one of them because there's no madness in, in, in those movies. But yes, a, a lot of these movies from the 30s are really well done. And, um, and the partnerships are great. Who yeah. else is? Who, well, do you have any favorite partnerships that you can think of oh boy um, um i would say again my you know my breadth of knowledge is much much more limited than yours and, and um you know my viewership of, of all these of these great combinations but i would agree with the the gene kelly uh, you know o'connell combination but 
again, I don't know if that but, was but, but they they didn't they didn't not, not do a lot of movies together. Yeah, but they didn't you know they didn't do multiple things together. So I would have to maybe reserve um, my answer to that question because I'm not exactly sure. I have to think about I'm thinking about combinations that were more discreet. You know, they they acted in one film together and it was. Oh, oh I'm sorry, I, I misunderstood. No, 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 no. My question, no, no. You, you answered. Many. No, I can't answer my own question. You answered it but perfectly, and I'm I'm so glad that you did because I want to go back and and look at these because I know that anytime Hepburn is in a film, it's it's magical, and you know I'd like to see her with 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 Grant now, um, and be able to to see that the course of development and evolution of their relationship through multiple films, like these days, I don't know if that happens as as often. I don't know if you'll. Even in romantic comedies, maybe that's the place where it does occasionally happen. If there mm -hmm. are multiple romantic comedies where you're combining, like I don't know, uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, whoever it might be, Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't know. I'm just pulling out a name. But sometimes you'll get a romantic comedy where you have the the duo that really clicks and they work well together for multiple films. But mm -hmm. it seems like in in the earlier films uh, uh, to which you just referred, there's they happened more on a more sustained um, um, pattern. Am I, am mm -hmm. I wrong to think that? No, I, you're not. Part of the studio system was when they, when this was their version of, um, I guess the franchise films, except they, they were not, the stories would be totally different. What, mm -hmm. what, what, what the studio system realized is, ah, we've got, there's magic in this pairing. When Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are doing a comedy, um, the fact that they were um, lovers in real life, um, somehow or other, there was a magic there. There was a chemistry that came out in the movies. The, the, the first one that they did was called Adam, Adam and E. Adam's, no, Adam's Rib. And, it, and it's, it's, um, they are both attorneys and they wind up on being on the opposite side of one case, a murder case where this woman killed her husband. And, um, and the woman is played by Judy Holliday and one of the very few movies she did. She was a wonderful comedian. Anyway, that movie became a big, big hit. So they said, let's have them do another one. So they 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 always played um, a couple who were not, well in Adam's rib. They were married to start out with, but in subsequent times they were not married, but they would be teasing each other, and then and then um, it would become romantic, um, uh, and uh, they're just absolutely wonderful. Um, and but each story is totally separate. It's just they brought these two people together because they had some chemistry, and they realized the audience loved seeing them together. Uh, now that's different from the the Thin Man movies, where it was an ongoing series with an ongoing plot, and the, they were playing the same characters. The the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, they're playing different characters in each and every movie, but it's always the two of them. And, right. right. And, yeah. And uh, and similarly, Cary Grant never played the same character with Catherine Hepburn or with Irene Dunn, who was another one that he did several movies with. But they there was certain chemistry there. They clicked. They were a good comedy team. So let's do another story that with these with these two people who we know the audience kind of enjoys watching interact yeah perhaps i'm overlooking some some modern examples of that but it seems less and less to be to be the trend i you know again it would it would have to be in the genre of romantic comedies but i can't think of many you know really electric duos that that persist in 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 I'm trying to I'm blocking on her yeah I'm not a lot of them but like Tom Hanks did um uh Sleepless in Seattle and then uh -huh. he did You've Got Mail uh -huh. and I'm blocking on the name of of who his was it his, Meg Ryan 
was, I think it was Meg Ryan, right? And yeah. so, so there's two movies where they did they were together and they worked as as um, as a team as a couple, and and they're good movies. Uh, uh, You've got mail is nowhere near as good as Sleep in Seattle, but it's still entertaining. Um, but I don't think they did another. So it was just those two. Um, uh, yeah, and of course we're talking about male female. Um, I just recently watched Air, and that of course features Ben Affleck and and. Um, Matt and, Damon. And Matt Damon. Yeah. And, okay, they, they're, they always, they're a team. Yeah, they're, yeah, but a team in a, different, in a different way, yeah. And yes. they've, they've um, certainly produced some good works together jointly, mm -hmm. and that's probably yeah. because of their long, enduring friendship and, and the way in which they've kind of both come up through the ages. Mm -hmm. I'll, have to, I'll have to look into that more. And that's an interesting theme. It's a, it's a, because so much of it is the way in which the film is sold to, mm -hmm. the, to the viewing public. And sure. I think years ago it was... Again, and another fascinating point is, you know, these were all characters, people uh, about whom we knew very little. They, they didn't have personal Instagram pages. They didn't have their own personal YouTube channels that would enable you almost voyeuristically to, to, to view and watch them in their every waking moment as right. they post videos of their, you know, of their consumption of, you know, some, you know, brec fancy breakfast at, breakfast. A, at, a, at right. a Hollywood, yeah, at a Hollywood um, restaurant. Right. Well, the, the, uh, that's a very good point. For instance, I, I don't think the audience at large knew that Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy were involved with each other. Tracy was still married, so this was not something that Hollywood would want to talk about. But everyone in the film industry knew, and it. it's right, and it's probably not something on which they reported. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that you know the, the journalistic class. I'm sure was apprised of this very scandalous piece of information, but withheld it from public view. There was a certain decorum that was that was observed then. Now it's you know if if the person himself or herself doesn't <laughs> announce it to the world on their mm -hmm. own platform, uh, you know you have TMZ awaiting you at the, at right. the airport it's, to, to yes, snap your yes. little smooch, <laughs> your illicit your illicit kiss, and uh, of course uh, you know run that headline everywhere. Uh, but yeah, there was a different, you know, going back to the the example of the Hepburn and the Brando, like, like, these were all figures again, of whom you knew very, very little. And for that reason, they were, they were these giants they, for the studios, you know, you would present Hepburn and again and again and again. And there was this, this sterling image of this, you know, sophisticated, multi-talented actress who could handle any role and was you know elegant and beautiful and you know had the you know the perfect complexion the facial features everything you know but you didn't know about the peccadillos and you didn't know about the you know the um, extramarital affairs and things like right, that right. Um, so I think it probably it probably helped the studios in that way and they were able to you know cultivate this image this endearing image that moviegoers absolutely loved whereas nowadays I think because we're so hyper exposed to these people and we realize that they are not demigods they're they are just people and because there's so much content being produced by you know joe average joe's like yours truly uh, <laughs> producing content online or comedians producing content on instagram that it, that it's really changed dramatically that mm -hmm. i think it's kind of democratized it and also if I can use the word vulgarized it a little bit, it's, you know, because it's now really. I think that's the, I think that's the right word. And in, in democratizing it, you're getting a lot of people who simply are not talented at it um, or, or, or don't have the discipline um, or, or the opportunity to, to learn how to, how to. Now, right. Now combine that in a generation 
overwhelmingly ignorant of great works of the past, let's say students that did not enroll in your class and didn't take your class. So then that becomes a little bit of a problem where we're losing the objective acknowledgement of really great works. And I think that's a bit of a problem. You know, you combine the short attention spans, the fact that, you know, everyone's on mm -hmm. YouTube, <laughs> every, you know, everyone's posting their own content and thinking it's, you know, really swell. Um, and having no, uh, ha being unrooted in, the, you know, the deep soil that is our culture of, of cinema and mm -hmm. film. Um, you so know, I, the, I, it's, it's an, it, it, we're in a funny place in the world because now it is possible for anyone to watch almost any film that has ever been made. That's the paradox. Um, with, yep. with, you know, with almost no time lag whatsoever. Um, it is true that, for instance, ne something like Netflix is not rich in older films, but there are streaming services that feature older films. And so they're out there. And, and uh, But you need to know to look for them. You need to be interested to pursue them. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to see the next film that is pr being promoted um, uh, you know, on YouTube or, or, or on Instagram or on Facebook. Right. Um, and, and who is promoted and by whom is that promoted? I mean, there's an algorithm. There right. are, you know, of course, companies paying for advertisements to place that new ad for the Oppenheimer film in your feed. Right. But, but again, you know, is that going to enrich you culturally? Is that going to give you the, the best aesthetic experience to, to immerse yourself in a great work of art? Well, maybe in, op in the case of Oppenheimer. I was, yeah, I was about to say, that's a movie I have high, <laughs> that's, I, that's a movie I'm I so have high hopes for. But, I'm but, so um, excited but you, but you really, you know, we have so much choice that it's it's overwhelming, even yeah. if you're even if we're talking about you know the relatively current movies. And you know what, Oppenheimer show is showing up on your on your feeds now. Um, you know, three weeks after it's out, there's going to be another movie that's showing up on on your feeds. And I, even if Oppenheimer is really a hit, um, it's not going to be tossed at you in the same way because it's all controlled by people who are paying money to make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, but as a result, who's paying money to have to tell anybody to see The Thin Man? Nobody. Yeah. Um, and you, who would even know to look for it if you haven't heard about it? I, I was going to mention to you that my favorite Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant movie is a movie called Bringing Up Baby. And it is probably... I've, I've, heard, I've heard of it. I've not seen that's it. That's probably one of the best of the, fame, of the slapstick movies uh, of, of the 1930s. And it is very, very funny and very, very smart. And they are really a, a terrific team. Uh, comically, um, and and very quick. I mean, it's a Howard Hawks film, and it just it just goes. Um, but um, if you haven't heard of Bringing Up Baby, you're never going to see it. And if you've heard of it and you don't, not moved somehow to go seek it out, um, you're not going to watch it either. And, and I think that's a shame. Um, so, you know, I think uh, you know anybody who has a college education should should be required to take a course in the history of film. But I, nowadays, I no, I nowadays nobody's required to take a course in anything. Yeah, that's true. I, I think it's a, a pre—I mean, prerequisite to to truly consider oneself a cultured individual. And you know, I, maybe that's a, a passe term to be cultured. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's quite a, quite an aspiration and, and something you know for which we should all work. Uh, but um, I I agree with you entirely, and I think. Maybe some some scholars would eh, perhaps think less of a film as the uh, as the as a medium worthy of study and and 
um, pursuit. But I would disagree. I think it's just as ennobling and enriching as many of the great works of literature uh, with which your wife is probably spending her time right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's interesting. This is, a, this is actually a theme uh, about which Noah and I talked at some length, and that mm -hmm. is this unsettling paradox, as I like to think of it, of, of absolute accessibility of every fine work of art, every mm -hmm. sculpture painting uh, by Michelangelo is at the click of a mouse accessible to you. Right. Now you might not be able to go there and look at the Pietà, but you can certainly examine it from 360 degrees on you know, the Google service that allows you to zoom in you know, to, to Mary's face and you know, look into nooks and crannies that you probably wouldn't even be able to see if you were there in, in right. Italy. The same, in some regard, applies to film. I mean, just last night, in, in you know, in preparation for our conversation, and after having read your book, and because I was inspired to do so, I was watching you know a lot of the horror films that you recommend, Repulsion, and, and some of the other ones. Oh wow! Yeah, but I wanted to um, again kind of cleanse my palate. And <laughs> did, did you actually watch Repulsion? Did you? See I did. It? Yeah, yeah. It was excellent. It was excellent. It's brilliant. Um, but last night I watched The Searchers just as a different, you know, something different because I've, sure. I've been spending a lot of time with the horror films. And again, um, you mentioned the fact that these are immediately available online. This film, I actually picked it up at my local library for no cost. I just rent it for a week. So there's never been a time, you know, during which these great relics of our culture that still you know, they make our culture that what it is today. Uh, they, they are, uh, you know, accessible in so many different formats. And yet we seem the least willing or, uh, you know, stimulated to pursue them. And that's the paradox I see. And I don't know really how to, how to reconcile it. I hope that in time, having taken courses like yours and, and having heard conversations like this, people are inspired in some way to, to go out and just stop by your local library on the way home from work and go to the DVD section if you know you, your laptop still has that you know ability to receive a DVD right. disc. Um, and sometimes they even have it on, um, on like a streaming. You know, your library might have a streaming service or, or something mm -hmm. like that if it's a little bit more sophisticated. But you know, you pick that up, you get a week a week's rental, and you can watch every single great film on AFI's list of the top 100, right. and you can do that. And and absolutely change your you know your your appreciation for film. And I think that if we are to, going to do that, I mean, it would so so ennoble us. It would be so so great for everyone. So maybe you can just kind of men give me a comment or two about that that paradox. The, um, the I, I, wide availability and our would our address that. In, I would address that in a particular way. Um, are you aware of um, the Criterion Channel? And are you aware of the movie and MUBI uh, streaming service? No, the, it is MUBI. Yes, MUBI, MUBI. I don't know where the name comes from. Um, but the Criterion Channel is a streaming service, and MUBI is, and both of them feature classic films throughout the history, but a, a curated selection of classic films often put together as themes, maybe a collection um, based one by one director or a collection of films that um, are featuring women or a collection of films from a particular country or genre, brilliantly available. 
with commentary um, uh, tracks, with background information. Um, the Criterion Collection, which is a DVD collection, that was their original business, and they were famous for making available the best version of a film, usually uh, often a cleaned up version of an older film that had all the scratches removed and the sound improved. Um, then cu coupling it on the DVD with interviews by the people who made the film or by critics of the film, by other films that are connected with it, by, uh, by group discussions about it, all on DVD. It was like a class about each film. Um, on, and every DVD, every DVD had these these extras, and I'm not talking trivial extras like you know you know um, an interview with with the actress to talk about how what it was like being dragged around because there were special effects or something, but serious discussion about how the film was made and explaining um, the the import of certain scenes, the history behind it. Um, available for each and every d uh, movie that they pr produced. And I think they have probably a catalog of a thousand films now. But um, in the day that now the DVDs are less popular, they uh, have a, uh, this, uh, this second business, which is a streaming service, which takes many of these same films and includes many, but not all of the same extra material. And this is a place, and movie has some of the same, but Criterion Channel is a more complete collection. Um, where you can go and you can catch The Thin Man. You can catch uh, Bringing Up Baby. You can also catch an Asian film you've never heard of that's brilliant. You can, um, uh, it's not just old films and then films that are in black and white. It's films that came out three years ago or maybe 10 years ago that somebody thinks uh, are, are worth um, preserving and, and are special. And um, I, I think it's just an incredible resource because Netflix and Amazon Prime does not give you that. Uh, and, um, you know, it costs like $8 a month for Pete's sake. And for $8 a month, you've got a curated collection of the best movies in the history of film. Thank you so very much for, for explaining that. Andy. I, by the way, have no connection with this. I am not selling this in any way. I just love it. Um, I imagine then, you in a back room doing the curation and, and uh, <laughs> doing the record. It's, it's, almost, it's almost on the level of a biblical exegesis, the way you describe it. And it's, it's um, perhaps this is profane of me, but... It, you know, the Bible is so interconnected. It's the, you know, the, the great hyperlinked text. Mm -hmm. Not only is it in its, on its own, within its own, you know, boundaries and pages, is it a, you know, the height of, of maybe poetic and spiritual achievement and literary achievement, mm -hmm. um, but it also is the inspiration for so many other great works in, in the arts. And it sounds as though, in some respect, this type of uh, streaming services is able to kind of capture that in a very, in a very small and, like I said, um, less godly way. <laughs> but right. you're, taking, you're taking these films and, you know, really, okay, let's, it's almost like a textual analysis. We're you're taking them seriously. You're yeah. taking them seriously. You're, 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 you're meant to enjoy them, but you're taking it seriously in terms of, of the intention and, and the effect. Right. You're meant to enjoy them, but you're also meant to be edified by them. And I think that yes. second part is what is is lacking in in common in, in common modern film. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I like that idea of a very deep analysis. And I will I'll include links to those two those two streaming services. I would also the, the Criterion Channel is the streaming service. The Criterion Collection is the DVD collection. Um, 
And this probably uh, may be time sensitive in, in that it may not apply uh, a week or so from now. But right now, the Criterion Collection is, do, is giving a 30% discount on all, the, all, all their DVDs. Huh. Um, so um, uh, if, if there was ever a favorite movie that you wanted to own a copy of, this is, this is the place to go. Um, yeah. But otherwise, the, you know, the, the streaming service maintains uh, a rotating collection of films that is really quite impressive. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, your book, The Madness at the Movies, is, uh, you know, based on the on the, the course that you that you taught for many years, you know, yes. of, which it's, of which it's a more popular extension. And you talked about the response by uh, some of those seniors to whom you to whom you taught and how gratifying it was to see them, you know, emerge from what they probably considered, you know, oh, a, a course about film, you know, really enriched by this cultural mm -hmm. experience. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Uh, you know, how gratifying was that really? And do you think that, you know, the students were then able to carry on in their, you know, in their lives, you know, pursuing, you know, these, these great films? Do you think that it was a good, a good door through which a lot of people then walked in and found much more I, cer I certainly hope so. I mean, there's, there's, there isn't a, a good way for me to know how many people have kind of sustained their interest, but that they would make the point of, uh, of, of, of talking about it that way uh, at the time that the course might be, you know, winding down. Um, and the fact that, um, you know, they were so enthusiastic about some, so many of the films that I showed them um, and in, a, in their discussions, and they were so thoughtful about them. And, um, and and often saw things that I hadn't seen and kind of made me me uh, rethink some of my ways of approaching some of these movies. So they were so engaged that I can. It would be hard for me to imagine that there wasn't some um, some some powerful po powerfully positive um, follow up to this after they were on their own. Um, uh, the main thing was opening the door and, and, and uh, well, you know, they said we've never seen a black and white film and then they're suddenly totally immersed in a black and white film and, and they're appreciating what makes it different and, and, and beautiful um, because black and white cinematography can be remarkably uh, powerful. Um, but also um, it didn't matter to them that it was something that they hadn't experienced before. It was because the story was so good, the acting was so good, the way this, the way it was presented was so creative um, that they were just immersed in it in a, in a way that was that 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 made it hard for them to not start chatting about it and talking about it and being and expressing their enthusiasm and then telling their friends. So um, uh, I, I, d I discovered from several several times that people said, you know, I, I watched started watching this movie and I called my roommate in and three people down the hall came in and we we wound up having a little little festival watching this film and and we were all blown away by it. Yeah. By the way, that was that was gratifying because one of the things I did with the with the course that I was not a you can't do with a book and that was actually one of the reasons I found myself hesitating be, and taking a while to figure out how to write this book was that when I did this as a class at Yale, the students would watch the film the day before the seminar each and every week, the featured film. They would watch it together in a darkened room on a large screen with a good sound system um, as part of a, the group experience of being in an audience, which is profoundly different from watching it on your computer screen, um, whether or not you have other folks with you. 
if you're watching it at home on your computer screen, it's too easy for you to pause it and go get something to drink or go to the bathroom or answer a phone call or do something on Facebook. It, it's way too easy to be distracted. You're in a theater, it's dark, and the film, the, the screen is big enough and the story is big enough um, that you're really involved with it. You're not going to be wanting to go to the bathroom. You're going you're, you're gonna to wait because... because it means something to, to stick with it and you'll miss something if you if you're if you turn your attention away um so uh having that communal experience to me is very special and i insisted on it it was part of the the, the requirement for the class and i would but i don't know how you can continue to do that i mean the criterion channel is wonderful but you're watching it on your computer or maybe from your computer you can watch it on your tv screen but it's not the same as as with other people hearing them laugh hearing them gasp hearing them ga uh, have some kind of reaction that that you share or you don't understand but but that speaks to you in a way that tells you more about yourself and about the film itself and what's happening in the film um it, it really makes a difference. And uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's lost if you don't go to the theater. And with COVID and, and with me getting older in, in, um, and having so many movies in the theaters that I don't particularly want to see, I've lost some of that habit. Of, of, and uh, and I, 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 I mourn that. I, I'm not happy that that's true. Um, I would say that most of the films I've seen in the last four or five years, I've watched on, on my TV, but... Um, basically in my house with my wife or without my wife, if, if it's, if it's too upsetting a movie. Um, and, uh, and as much as I could sit there and appreciate it, I really wish there was somebody I could, I could nudge on the other side of me and say, did you see that? And, um, uh, or just experience in a quiet passive way, um, because I'm a, a great believer in not talking during while the movie's playing. Um, and 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 certainly not talking on your cell phone while the movie's playing. Um, that, um, that that just being with other people makes a difference. Yeah. You walk out of that that theater and you've all had the same experience. You've all been exposed to the same stimulus, but you may have come away with different experiences because you're taking something different away from it. But it's something you can share. Yeah, it, that's uh, so beautifully put and and feelingly put. And you do talk about this in your book. And it's a, it's an idea on which I wanted to enlarge, but you, I think, preempted me and, and did so marvelously. Um, I was going to ask you about that difference, that transition that we've seen um, between, you know, sort of the golden age in which you were you were having these almost communal and familial experiences at these films that were relatively inexpensive of course at the time you know <laughs> maybe relatively expensive if a dollar 50 you know would have been much more then than it is it now it was a lot more and 25 cents was a lot more too sure 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 now you could hardly find a quarter <laughs> anywhere <laughs> um, i can't remember the last time i touched a quarter but um um you know but now it's just absolutely so different and it's so insular and like you described, you know, last night, I, I don't have a television, sadly. <laughs> I don't have cable. Um, but, but, you know, what I do have is a laptop. So I watch The Searchers, this wonderful film with, you know, all my lights on and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with a laptop computer at the top of which there are how many uh, uh, tabs open as I watch it. So, you know, I... I and Daniel, let me just say, The yeah. Searcher as a Western has this incredibly broad canvas, monumental. Exactly. Exactly. 
and you again you you're just a step ahead of me and yeah. that's precisely what i was going to say the same with a film like lawrence of arabia or or even some of the you know any of the the westerners um you know any high noon or shane you have these but especially in especially in the searchers you have these sweeping panoramic beautiful images um of the West as they traverse through Texas and in the New Mexico territory and up north in search of Scar, the, the chieftain. Mm -hmm. you know? The chief, right. Right, right. Um, and my uh, sadness came over me briefly that I was unable, though yes, is immediately accessible to me for a small fee to, to rent it on Amazon Prime as I did with this. Um, uh, but... Um, not to be able to see it as as really the director probably intended and as John Wayne would, would have wanted you to see it on this massive engrossing encapsulating screen that you know in which you were completely immersed and you could see the the plateau and the the snow and all these great um, uh, these great um, sets that were built I'm sure and then collapsed <laughs> soon after the you know the completion of the film so that that is a little bit disheartening that I'm unable to do that um, and I, I kind of yearn for a return, like a pre-pandemic return to, and a restoration of what we once had. And uh, I, I don't think that we ever quite will return to that. Do you foresee that happening? Do you think that we'll recapture that communal um, kind of gravitas of, of a film being released and everybody going to it and filling the theaters, almost the way that happened with, with uh, Top Gun, the Maverick film? Mm -hmm. Somewhat, it was like a, was like a hint of that. I yeah. don't know if it will continue. Maybe you think it will, but it was a, it was a. I I don't know. I would I would like for it to continue. Um, I would you know, um, back in the day, the only way you could see um the searchers is if a revival theater showed it. Uh, and if you were lucky and you happened to know about that and you were close enough to the theater, you could go and you'd see it. And it might be a a dirty scratch print. In fact, it often was, um, but it was on a big screen with a with, with an audience. Um, frankly, the dirty scratch scratch print is is a problem. And so the, it would. And what's nice about the streaming services is they're often showing the best version. The best and and Criterion always shows the best version um, uh, of of the film. Um, also, they're, they're very good at by the way of showing. Um, like alternative endings and, and things that are that are part of the story. But um, I would think, uh, I know that many universities have um, film uh, societies and show older films as well as uh, contemporary films, but they show it on a big screen in a, in a, in a, in a if, the, if the university is well off enough, they'll have the um, best sound systems going and they'll, and they'll have comfortable seats. Um, Yale has at least three or four um, facilities for showing films with, uh, and what's great about Yale have, is that they don't just show films that are on DVDs that are being projected on a screen, but they actually have pro projective um, projectors that can show the old 35 millimeter celluloid films. And they also have something of a library of them that they've accumulated over the years where they own copies of these movies. Um, and two or three of them will be available every semester. And um, and so if you pay attention to that, you could probably catch many of the great films on a screen with an audience 
Um, you don't have to be going to the university. Many of these things are open to anybody who just happens to live close enough to be able to get there. So um, I, the, the, Yale, the, the Yale movies are almost always open to the public. Uh, and, and guess what? They don't cost anything. Even better. Incredible. So there, yeah. it, it's there. It's possible. And every once in a while, um, for based on an anniversary or something, there will be um, uh, they will bring back a film from the 1930s and the 1950s um, for a special showing. And pay attention to that. And, you know, I frankly would refuse to see our Lawrence of Arabia on my my computer screen. I I have watched it on my I have a nice widescreen TV, which by the way I don't have TV. All I have is um, internet, so I can connect to streaming services. Mm -hmm. I don't watch otherwise uh, television otherwise. And um, but I also will often attach my computer to my TV screen so I can see what's on the computer on a big enough screen. And in your home, a very a widescreen TV is a pretty good approximation of being in the theater. What's, yeah. what's missing is the 47 other people who you'd like to have sitting with you. Um, exactly. But, exactly. But and I fear my fear is that let's take a child who might be, well, eight years of age, right? Mm -hmm. The age at which you started seeing films. If he's, and you know, a little bit interested in, in the theater and in cinema uh, in 2023, he or she might never have that communal experience that is so fundamental to truly appreciating mm -hmm. great works of cinema. And, and that to me is really disheartening to know that, you know, yes, it, I, I prefer if the if the options are never to see Lawrence of Arabia or to see it on a thirteen inch you know MacBook, of course you want to want to watch it in in a constrained window, mm -hmm. but but I I'm just so sad to think that you know children are coming up in this world that in in America especially that that probably won't have that that rootedness in theater going. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll give you one example of. Uh, a film that I saw a couple months ago with my brother-in-law. We were we were visiting Williamsburg, Virginia, just as mm -hmm. a, a weekend trip, and totally unexpectedly, we were we were at a a, a lovely sort of colonial style uh, Marriott, like a like a vacation club of some sort, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, because of the vacation club, they had a list of activities, daily activities, nightly activities, you know, in which all the, the, the guests could participate. And to our surprise and delight, what was showing that night in their little theater but Casablanca. And oh. I, I was ecstatic. Of course, it's a film that I've seen previously, at least once, probably twice. But I was like, you know, Chad, my brother-in-law, we, we just absolutely have to go to this film. So... You know, we went our way and they do have this little theater under, you know, under the, the, the game room with the pool, the billiards table. And, and you know, they had uh, stadium seating. Not, you know, it could probably accommodate 20 people or so. Mm -hmm. We walked in and every single chair was occupied. And, and this isn't, I get it, it's Colonial Williamsburg. So there, maybe the, the, light, the nightlife isn't as active as elsewhere. Right. <laughs> it might be in Charlottesville or, you know, a, a college, you know. A, um, you know, a different town or a city, sure. but I was, I walked in and it, it just, I was kind of momentarily overwhelmed with, with joy to see so many people, 20, but, but a lot of people cramped in this room with hardly a, you know, leg room <laughs> to watch a film produced and put out so many decades ago. 
you know, of which people probably have a very, very faint knowledge, but certainly no, you know, with which they don't have any real connection today, aside from a few famous lines, <laughs> you know, here's to looking at you or, you know, what so, have you. So are, was the entire audience white haired? No. And that, that is what absolutely floored me. And, and you know, I live in a, an area of the world that is mostly white haired <laughs> in Southwest Florida. No. And it, it absolutely was not. I saw, you know, a, a younger father with two children, probably between the ages of eight and 10 um, couples, you know, 40 years of age, maybe, maybe a few elderly people, but you know, not, they weren't disproportionately represented in that setting. Mm -hmm. So it was just like this really heartening experience to see, you know, maybe because of lack of alternative, better alternatives, but everybody was gathered together. It seemed like everybody was engrossed by this film and was thoroughly enjoying it the same way I did and have enjoyed it as I've seen it multiple times. And that, you know, that is what I want everybody to be able to experience. That should be the, you know, the form, the ideal of, uh, of, of a movie viewing experience. And I, right. I just hope, I hope in the future with big hits, maybe it's an Oppenheimer, maybe it's, it's Maverick. I hope films like that are able to entice people back into the theater away from their, the comfort of their laptops and their food and their, you know, their, you know, readily accessible everything and, and back into that communal experience because it's like to use a, a word that, you know, I, I used earlier, it's, it's a little bit religious where you're, you know, you're gathering together for a very special experience. You're sort of transposed out of yourself. You're in this, you're in this setting that's, um, yeah, kind of transcendent in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very special. That is, that is wonderful. Um, and uh, were you? Did you have a sense of being aware of a different experience seeing it on the big screen? Because you said you before that you'd seen it on your computer. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, now this wasn't a you know a, a massive typical theater screen. It was sure, sure. in the basement of a hotel. So you know it was larger than you know your your television. But absolutely, I mean you're you're engrossed by it, um, and and that's. It absolutely changes the viewing experience. Mm -hmm. I think it really immerses you. You become much more sensitive and perceptive to what is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, my plan this summer, uh, referencing Oppenheimer again, mm -hmm. is to travel up to New Jersey and to watch that in IMAX with my with my brother-in-law. Oh, oh, okay, IMAX, yet? Right, and and that's the way that it was intended. You know, Christopher Nolan's right. film on these very expensive IMAX cameras. So, you know, right. that's but, that's well, the, I, you know, IMAX is the is the the, the uh, cinerama of uh, of today, and yes. it's really it's really very impressive. But you have to know how to use it. It'll be, and I think Nolan is likely to be somebody who knows how to use it. But I didn't realize that film was going to be available in IMAX. But now now you're um, inspiring me. Well, I'll have to double check. I'm planning to travel thousands of miles to see it in IMAX. <laughs> I have to ensure that it is. Uh, because There's probably an IMAX theater in Florida, no? Oh, doubtless there is. But my brother-in-law is, you know, he's, oh, he's, he's a cinephile, not in the same way that you are, um, but he's just an absolute movie enthusiast. What you have is the, the encyclopedic knowledge of, of, you know, of, of cinema through, through many decades. Um, my problem, my problem is I know so little about current movies. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, why your that's why your wisdom needs to be, you know, celebrated and and disseminated because that's what we're lacking. We we have ample supply of you know critiques of modern films and modern films in general, but we don't have our our very knowledgeable and experienced voices talking thoughtfully and 
with some erudition <laughs> about mm -hmm. these about these past films. Uh, now, which actually brings us to the book that Noah and I are writing. Um, uh -huh. I, I, I think I'm going to need to wind up in a, in a little bit, of but I, I, I would like to point that to that, which, you know, the, the, my Mandis in the Movies book just came out this January, so it's been the one on my mind about that. But at the same time, I, we've been fin uh, getting to the finish line with a, a book that my son and I, Noah, are doing together, and it's called The 12-Hour Film Expert. And it's built on a book that he had written before. I think he told you about called The 12-Hour Art Expert. Oh, absolutely. I, I was uh, enamored of that book. Uh, yeah. Recommended it to everybody. And he he disclosed that you'd be working on a book similar in its nature to to that which he produced. Yeah. And I, I love the idea because this is precisely what we need. So so go on and, and tell well, us Well, no, uh, um, not to go into too great depth about it, but Noah was doing something very um, loving and and um, and therapeutic, which was that as I was finishing this Mandis of the Movies book, which was a passion project that I that uh, that helped me get through the COVID lockdowns um, uh, as I was doing the writing, um, I suddenly was kind of thinking, my gosh, I've now finished the book and there's nothing else to do, and it's coming out in six months, and and I really felt uh, a little empty, and um, and I wouldn't say I was depressed, but I was a little bit at sea. And I mentioned that to Noah, and Noah has um, is has been very prolific as a book writer, and and he said that he avoids that feeling of of um, of, of of loss at the at, at coming at the end of a project that you put a lot of energy into, by always starting the next project, and and sometimes starting it before the end of the first one, but certainly at a minimum starting it immediately after the end of the previous one. So he and um, he had just come off. Um, some a, a very successful reaction to his uh, twelve-hour art expert book, which got has gotten very good reviews and came out last fall, and um, and he said, why don't we do a book together? And and he came up with saying, let's do twelve-hour film expert because my publisher, as he said, is kind of interested in maybe turning this into a series, kind of like the dummy books. Uh, Absolutely, and that's well. They're not at all dummy. Uh, well, the dummy books are not dumb. They're very. You're, you're, you're right. Very you're right. I should, check, I should check myself. Yes, the dummy books are actually quite sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, if we could come up with sophisticated but engaging and relatively short introductions to um, subjects that people don't know that much about but are curious about, Noah's art history book was was going to be uh, that was the audience for that. And why don't we do the same with film, knowing my enthusiasm for film, which Noah has, has since he grew up as my son, he's also an enthusiast of film. Um, and I just thought it was very touching that he would offer that to do it together, um, because we'd never written together. Yeah, um, what was that collaborative process like? I know... Well, it, we're still in the midst of it. Um, it, it turned out to be... Uh, I'm, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag about this, but... Um, because Noah has a very important book coming out in December that he was very much involved with finishing up this up until this past December, uh, it's going to it's called Brushed Aside and it's a history of women in art, and it's and it's likely I think it's going to get a lot of attention. Um, great title, Brushed Aside. I love the title. Yeah, I um, love the title. Uh, anyway, he was because he was finishing that, and the time that I became finished my work on the book was a year ago last summer. Um, we came up with the idea of the book. We presented it to the publisher. They fast-tracked the proposal. They said yes. Um, they said we have one requirement, however, uh, and then we're we'll be delighted for you to do the book. Noah's name has to go first on the on the cover. 
<laughs> so I had no problem with that at all. And so because Noah was so involved with the book he was had a, a, a near deadline of, I started writing. And in fact, the first, you ask about collaborating, the first five chapters I wrote. Um, and then um, uh, Noah has now been freed up and he's been doing his chapters. And, um, and uh, so it's, the collaboration has been about the idea. The, we, we talked a lot about what to include in the various chapters. Um, when it came time to him to do his chapters again, because he was so busy, I provided him with a lot of notes uh, uh, on the chapters that he was going to write, so he didn't have to do quite as much research. So I have to say, I did a lot more work on this book than he has. I, I but, think I think you need to assert your paternal priority on this. And, and no, uh, no, no, Ray, no, I, <laughs> I am I am delighted to be in his shadow, um, and. Um, and to learn from him because he's somebody who knows books and he knows publishing and 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 he's a good writer he's got a much lighter touch than i have um and so um one of the collaborations that will happen i just finished my last chapter yesterday mm -hmm. and noah has two more chapters to write and then we're done um mm -hmm. but we're not done done now we then we have to look at all of the chapters and see if we can find a common voice for them and I'm going to be asking Noah to zhuzh them up, to use that term that, they, that you see on TV a lot, um, and put his voice in there because he's better at telling jokes than I am. So yeah, well, I, um, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't, having interviewed both of you now, having that distinct honor, that might be a very distinct honor. I don't know if anyone else on earth has. Uh, no, nobody has yet. But you are possibly the first. I would just have to say, based on my small experience with the, the Charney uh, team, that uh, you might be the more, the more humorous so far. <laughs> well, okay. But uh, uh, anyway, um, so uh, he's going to be, he has a, the bottom line is I did a lot of work uh, on my own initially. He's doing a lot of work on his own initially. Then we're putting our heads together. Um, and uh, hopefully our deadline is July 1st and we're well ahead of that deadline. Yeah. Um, but the de deadline in publishing is always very porous. And basically, having written all the chapters, the next step is going to be probably trimming them by 25% so that, uh, that uh, it meets their criterion, because they wanted this to be a quick and not too expensive book, and therefore not too long a book. But Absolutely. I think it's going to be a great introduction to anyone on the subject we talked about, because it introduces you by genre to the great films in, uh, of the last 75 years. And, and what makes a film a Western? What makes a film a horror movie? What makes a film an action film? What do you look for that defines it? Um, how does it work? What, uh, how do you understand what the film does that makes you excited about what's happening or makes you scared about what's happening or makes you curious about what's happening? Um, so that's what the kind of thing we talk about. And, um, and if anybody is wanting to have somebody guide them toward the best films out there, this book is going to do that. It's going to be invaluable. And the same way I, I found the 12-hour art critic to be absolutely essential reading, mm -hmm. I'm sure that this will be um, similarly important and, and deserving of placement on everybody's bookshelf. I should say, though, that it's funny. You mentioned the, the combination or the putting together of, of your head and, and Noah's head. You know, it's we can't neglect the fact that you are a physician by training. <laughs> and, and again, it's it's funny because that's not 
it's a topic that I wanted to address, you know, and, and talk about at some, you know, but, but so many other themes were calling us and, and we just had to address them and talk about them. And I'm glad that we did, but we shouldn't neglect the fact that, you know, you, you are a man of science, <laughs> you know, professionally, you, you, you know, that's why I say so diversely talented, you're able to speak with such erudition on, on all these different topics. And we hardly even probed into psychiatry, but I love the combination of, of your maybe, what would it be? Your more um, right-brained, maybe left-brained approach as a, you know, as a clinician, as someone mm -hmm. who's, you know, went through the rigors of, of medical school and, uh, you know, residency and fellowship and all these sorts of things. And, you know, Noah is a, this, this esteemed art historian, specifically mm -hmm. of, you know, art thievery and probably more a, a right-brained individual, right, with all the writing and the professorship and the art and so it's it's fascinating to see these two brains combined uh, in this one project, and I'm sure, as a result of that combination, it's just going to be a fabulous book. So I can't wait to get my hands on it, and whenever it's released, probably not well, July, but you know, well, no, it, no, July is is just the, the fin when we had to have all the chapters done. Right, so your submission. It's, it's, yeah, it's so going to we'll, be editing. Yeah. We have to choose photographs. There's a lot. The earliest it would come out would be a year from fall. Okay. Okay. Well, I uh, eagerly await its its release uh, at that time. Um, so, and Daniel, if you wanted at some point for me to come back and we could talk more specifically about the psychiatric aspect of my book, um, I mean, it is it, it is madness at the movies. It's movies, but we're also talking about uh, abnormal psychology. We're talking about mental illness, um, and um, I'd be happy to discuss that with you if you want. I would have you back weekly, but you know we focused <laughs> <laughs> we focused predominantly on the on the movies side today. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Because again, like that could be explored and endlessly. And of course, then you you take the topic of the madness, you know, uh, you know, on which we may have uh, only kind of touched <laughs> a, a little bit, uh, and that you know explores a whole different area. But of course, that is the theme of the book. It's exploring the mental illnesses of all these. You know, famous figures, these characters. You know, the the, the De Niro character in um, Taxi Driver, in Taxi Driver, for instance, as a prominent example, or Repulsion, the the, the female character who is. I, I, well, I don't want to get into it and misspeak now because I'm sure I, I, you know, you would open up a whole kettle of fish and we could talk about that for for another couple hours. Um, but I, yeah, absolutely, I would be honored to have you back to talk more about the psychiatric end. I just wanted to point out because we haven't really discussed it, that you know, that is your training and that is your, you know, your expertise. Although I think you're an expert at and of a multitude of things. Well, uh, the, 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 the cinema, the cinema expertise is I'm an autodidact. I took one course uh, introduced uh, at Columbia. Um, but amazingly the film studies folks at Yale allowed me to, to teach um, uh, a course about, about film. Um, um, uh, and uh, nobody hollered at me and, and said, you got it wrong. So what can I say? And, I, and I'm sure like your mother, they have no regrets for having done <laughs> they the have no regrets. Well said. <laughs> They're very pleased to have had your, uh, your, your scholarship and your, your presence. I can, I hope so. Experiencing you, you know, in this format, I, I've, I'm sad that I didn't have the aptitude nor the wherewithal to, <laughs> to attend Yale university, but this book, again, popularizes and makes accessible to everyone, you know, this fantastic content, uh, you know, by which I think everybody will be enriched. Mm -hmm. So with that, Dr. Charney, do you have any parting words for our audience? Watch movies. And, uh, <laughs> and, and if you want to be inspired by 
my book, Madness at the Movies, to choose your movies. Several of my friends have actually created at-home um, movie festivals based on the chapters in the book. Um, they, you know, gathering with friends or just or just a couple. And um, and uh, I I agree with you, Dan. You were suggesting way earlier on that um, that working your way through a lot of these movies might be a little bit emotionally um, uh, oh, oh, uh, difficult because some of these movies are pretty uh, pretty intense. But um, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend anybody binge on these films. But if you want to see some really good films that portray various kinds of mental illnesses, um, this can be a guide. Yeah. And I think, like I said, if you find yourself, you know, cringing uh, and hiding your face when watching A Beautiful Mind, <laughs> then <laughs> just prepare yourself for a film like Repulsion, you know, of which now I'm a, a big fan. But you can also, based on the guidance you provide in your book, you can, you can sort of get an assessment of what this film will be like. So repulsion, for example, is, is more, it's not a, like a slasher when you think of no. a psych thriller. It's not like it's very subtle and very beautifully filmed and Bergman is amazing. And now you've introduced me to Bergman. So of course now I'm you know exploring his oeuvre and I'm, I'm loving every minute of it. So Dr. Charney, uh, again, thank you so much for being generous with your time, unnecessarily generous with your time. Again, <laughs> this is a theme uh, about which we could talk endlessly and I hope in the future to to expand on it after I watch some more films and really familiarize myself with you know, some of the older uh, content available on Criterion Channel and Mubi that, I, that I'll be spending some time with. And I just want to thank you again for, for all the wisdom that you've bestowed on us. And Thank uh, you, Danielle. I've uh, Danielle, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so very much. Hopefully, uh, you know, it's it's been just as interesting as your NPR conversations and your other you know, <laughs> media conversations from more established uh, professionals. Um, but, tell, I will tell you a secret. It has been more. Interesting. You've 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 done really well. You've uh, you've you've, ta you've you've tapped into to uh, something that's a passion of mine, and I'm really glad to share it. And I'm so glad to have been able to to be the recipient of that and and to absorb you know all this knowledge again that I will run with, and uh, make good use of. Uh, so to everybody else listening, I thank you so very much. I encourage you to get yourself a copy of Madness at the Movies again, of which I have a, a copy, but I'll be sure to to post a link of that book in the show notes below. Um, you can check out all of these streaming channels, the Criterion movie, and then, of course, look for the Charney name in the future for Noah's uh, fantastic works, you know, of, of which I'm, I'm a huge fan, and also of Dr. Charney's um, collaborative efforts in the future. And with that, I bid everyone adieu, farewell, be well from Finneran's Wake. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel.